Welcome to New Valley. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, and today, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about a very easy subject. This has been a very super easy uh, sermon to get ready, ready for. It's called, Doesn't Christianity Denigrate Women? So it uh, <laughs> should be very easy. Um, we're doing that kind of in reflection on our study in the book of Ruth, actually, has made me want to address this. And there's a number of issues that are like this um, called defeater uh, issues for people. We'll mention that in just a minute. People, big questions that people wrestle with, uh, with regards to Christianity. So we'll be looking at that today. Next week, though, we're starting a new series called The Way of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at um, the Sermon on the Mount and, and the other, some of the other ethical teaching of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew and be talking about what it means to walk in the way of Jesus as God's people. And really excited about that. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, many people believe, is one of the most important ethical um, sermons or, or lectures ever given uh, by our Lord. And so very, very much looking forward to that uh, coming up. So today, though, uh, we'll be reflecting on Ruth, but we're going to be looking at Galatians 3, verses 27 through 29 as sort of the backbone of our passage. We're going to look at a lot of different passages, but I'm going to look at this one first and, and read it for us uh, right now. Uh, it'll be on the screen. It's in your bulletin as well. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ... Uh, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there are many things that people believe about the Bible and about Christianity uh, that serve as defeaters for them. Uh, for example, people say, uh, and you've probably heard some of these, and I, I've heard all of them at some point, I could never believe in Christianity because, fill in the blank. Things like, I could never believe in Christianity uh, because it's been used to condone slavery. Uh, I could never believe in Christianity because it's homophobic, it doesn't embrace science, leads to violence, and it denigrates women. And so for reasons like this, I could never be a Christian. And increasingly, a lot of people are saying, for reasons like this, I won't continue to be a Christian. And many are walking away from their faith. So today, I would like to wrestle with this question. Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? As we bring closure to our book of Ruth, and we look at how Jesus treated women also, we'll be doing that. And we're going to turn to uh, some Pauline uh, moments as well from, from Brother Paul. First, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? A short answer is no, let's go home. That would be a lot easier. The other answer is more nuanced, and yet forcibly I would say absolutely no. Christianity does not denigrate women, but has, has Christ, have Christians denigrated women? Most certainly. Have churches, have denominations, have pastored, have many Christians done that? yes. Absolutely. But in doing so, are they living in line with Scripture, with the Bible, with the Lord himself, with the creation accounts, and all these things? Are they living outside of God's will by denigrating women? And I would say, yes, they are living outside of God's will. That is not according to Scripture. Ruth and the entire Bible was written in the context of varying degrees of patriarchy. We, we all know that. And there are varying degrees of patriarchy still in our own society to some degree. And definitely, of course, around the world in many places where that would still be 
uh, the norm. Where women are counted as less than men. That's what it was like in Ruth's day. That's what it was like, like I said, in varying degrees uh, throughout uh, history in the ancient Near East. They had no claim to inheritance, their financial well-being, their societal well-being, and in every respect was very much tied to their relationship of the men in their life. And the thing I want us to see as we start is this. The Bible should be confronting and challenging and subverting every culture in which it's speaking to. It should. If it's God's will, and we are the kind of people that don't necessarily live in line with God's will, and that's definitely the message of the Bible, that humanity uh, does not naturally live according to God's will. In fact, instead, we're building a life apart from God, which is the very definition of sin. Then we uh, shouldn't be surprised that God's will would confront every single culture into which it is spoken or read or delivered. And so the Bible confronts and challenges all cultures. It subverted the culture into which it was written, and it challenges our culture in our postmodern and modern uh, worldview in the West, but for different reasons, often exact opposite reasons why we're challenged. The first thing I want us to see, let's start at the very beginning, shall we? Let's start at the very beginning. (laughs) It's a very good place to start. Let's start in creation. And the first thing that I want us to see from Genesis 1 and 2, we won't belabor this because we've studied this in depth in the book of Genesis when we studied that. Men and women are created as equal image bearers. We are equal in our image bearing. In creation, we read that God created humanity in his image and that he created both male and female in his image. In the creation story, Adam is created first, but it is his aloneness that is the one and only thing in creation that is a maladdiction, meaning it's not a benediction, it's a bad thing. It's the only bad thing in all of creation. Everything else was a benediction, it was blessed. Every other thing he created, he said, it's good, it is good, it is good, but his aloneness was not good. And so God created Eve for him. He created, he says, a helper suitable for him, and that word helper can bother you, but it, it's the word azer, and it's, it actually is not a subservient term at all because in almost every other instance in the Old Testament, or at least very, very many of them, it was in reference to God himself. Like Psalm 33, uh, where it talks about he is our help and he is our shield. He is our azer. So instead, the woman is a completion to man, and they mutually complement one another. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We see that the only bad thing was a single gendered humanity, and and that has to be, in my mind, what God is saying is, in order for my image to be fully reflected in humanity, it has to be a male and female sexed humanity, not a one or singular gendered humanity. It doesn't, or sexed humanity. that doesn't fully reflect my glory and who I am. They complement one another. They fulfill one another in many ways in creation. In creation, in the book of Genesis, we see that marriage is between one man and one woman, not one man and multiple women, but that pops up pretty quick in the story, doesn't it? Right after Genesis 3, which if you haven't noticed, that's like the big bad problem in the entire world. That's when the fall took place when humanity fell into building a life apart from God and sinning against God and rebelling against him. And since that point, we see in the Bible quickly in the Genesis story, there is things like uh, polygamy. Now, the question is, 
does the Bible encourage polygamy or is it just describing polygamy? And what I want to encourage you to see is that it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not saying, hey, this is a good idea. In fact, as you read the stories about Abraham and all these different people that are experiencing polygamy and, and things like that, it is, it's descriptive, but it's showing how foolish it is. It's showing the folly of it over and over and over. Now, we turn to the book of Ruth, and the thing that one of the things that we saw beautifully in this story that God, that God told and that God designed, because he's, the reason we have a Bible to begin with is that God moved through men and women to write uh, narratives and letters and stories by his Holy Spirit. We have an authoritative word from God because the Spirit of God himself has sovereignly uh, led uh, the, the, this book to being put together. It's the very word of God. And in the Old Testament, right in the middle of the story, we have this strong female voice. In the Old Testament, in a patriarchal society, right in the middle, uh, right in the period of the judges, you have God, by his Spirit, sovereignly choosing to have one of our books in our Bible, this story about Ruth. And the story of Ruth subverts patriarchy. It's not the whole point. In fact, it's, a, it's really a subplot. It's not the whole point. It's a story of amazing redemption and faithfulness. But Ruth is an immigrant. She's a widow and is barren. And so culturally, we, we saw she would have had almost no standing. However, throughout the book, we see her as a woman moving out in faith and exercising strong agency and strength in order to provide for her mother-in-law, Naomi. She speaks up and says, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God, and wherever you go, I will go, and I will be buried with you, and I will be buried with your people. Such strength. She goes to the field of Boaz and asks to glean among the harvesters, not just on the edges of the field. She steps out in strength. Um, and then we see this. She asked Boaz to redeem Naomi's land and to marry her. And that went way, we saw this, way, way, way beyond the letter of the law and well into the spirit of the law. And what's interesting is, and I just, I loved this book so much and I loved preaching it. Boaz isn't offended at all by her asserting herself in this way. He is this incredibly strong uh, masculine character, but he is not offended at all by her asserting herself and instead works alongside her mutually to carry out her plans for him to redeem the land and to marry her. And the people of Bethlehem are, are not offended either. And, and this is amazing to me. Think about this. This is the ancient Near East. You see people behaving badly in the Bible. It's not like the Bible's afraid to show how bad people can be. I, I mean, the Old Testament, wow. <laughs> There's some crazy stuff going down. So the people of Bethlehem, though, aren't offended. But listen, she's an immigrant, she's a widow, and she's barren. And she comes to town and proposes marriage to one of the most powerful men in the city. <laughs> Where else would that ever go well? A total outsider. How dare you, Ruth, come in here and take our Boaz? What are you doing? How could you assert yourself like that? You woman, you're a woman. You're an immigrant, you're barren, you're a widow, you don't have any power, you don't have any authority, and you just march in here and ask the best guy in town to marry, are you crazy? <laughs> they don't do that. Instead, they bless her. Uh, they call her noble. 
Just as Boaz was described as noble, uh, she is described as noble. So right in the middle of this Old Testament story, we have Naomi, who's redeeming suffering for us. We have Ruth redeeming femininity. Boaz, a redeemed masculinity. And Bethlehem shows us beautifully what redeemed community looks like. It's this story. It's this incredible story of what it looks like to walk in God's kingdom, to walk in the way of Jesus. It really is. And God put it right in the middle of the Old Testament. The next we see the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogies in the ancient Near East weren't only family trees, um, but were often who's who of your family uh, story. So it was kind of like who you wanted to highlight. So it was not a literal every single begat kind of thing. It was often like, hey, it's like name dropping a little bit, like we're related to (laughs) so-and-so. Have you ever done one of those family lineage websites, you know, where you put in the names and then try to see who you're related to and how far back it can go? It's pretty amazing, actually. And I did it once. And on my, my, dad, uh, on my dad's side, nothing. Like, it's just like, we, didn't, we have no ancestors. <laughs> I don't know what's up with that. Too many browns. Can't keep track of them. But with my mom's side, it just, it opened up. Just boom. And it showed all these people that were related to. And only one famous person. But apparently, William Faulkner is in our, the author is in our lineage. So I'm, I'm dropping that name. Like, ooh, William Faulkner. But, you know, the rest of the people I'm not going to mention. But that's kind of like what ancient Near East genealogies were like. Like, I'm related to Abraham Lincoln or whoever. And, and in Jesus' genealogy, in Matthew, in his list, in the ancient Near East, where women were almost never mentioned in genealogies, we have several women mentioned, including Ruth and including uh, Tamar, who has some very interesting things in her story, and including Rahab, a harlot, and Uriah's wife, who was taken advantage of by David. You have these women right in the genealogies of Jesus. Rebecca McLaughlin uh, is a, a professor who wrote a great book called Confronting Christianity. I can't commend this book more, it's so good. Um, it is answering the questions like, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? And she's addressing all these issues. She went to Cambridge. Uh, she has a seminary degree. Uh, and she writes this, the portrayal of women in the Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel, is stunningly countercultural. Luke constantly pairs men and women. And when he compares the two, it is often in the woman's favor. Both Zechariah and Mary are visited by the archangel regarding the virgin birth, and both ask similar questions. How can this be? Mary is commended, and Zach is struck dumb for his unbelief. <laughs> you remember that? It's like they ask the same question. Uh, Zechariah is like, hey, how can a virgin have a baby? And she's like, you're not talking for nine months. Shut up. Like, boom, can't talk. And Mother Mary's like, how can this be? And it's like, blessed art thou in the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. <laughs> like, it's amazing. In Luke 7, probably one of my absolute favorite passages in all the Gospels, we have this woman of the city, right, who dares to break into a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. She worships Jesus with her tears and anoints his feet. And she has her sins forgiven because she loves much. But Uh, And and is told by Jesus uh, that she is a person of great faith. But the Pharisees are warned of their hard-heartedness. They're warned. In cultural terms, Simon the Pharisee has every advantage. He's a man. She is a woman. 
He is admired. She is despised. He's hosting a dinner party. She's weeping, uh, a prostrate in embarrassment. This is Rebecca um, McLaughlin's words. But according to Jesus, she surpasses Simon on every count. So true. Also, we see Jesus showing so much grace to the Samaritan woman. You didn't talk to Samaritans if you were Jewish. They, they were despised. They hated each other. And you didn't talk to women in public either if you were a man. And Jesus beautifully has this conversation with her. Later, <clears throat> you see Jesus also with the, the woman caught in adultery. Who has a charge against you know, this woman? If anyone's without sin, pick up the stone and throw it first. Anybody in this crowd want to kill her? Good. If you don't have sin, pick up a stone and start throwing. And they drop their rocks and they walk away. At a time when men, uh, rabbis, wouldn't have female disciples, we find women following the Lord. And obviously the disciples were the 12 men. But along with those disciples, there were female disciples. Not apostles, but they, they, in a time when rabbis just did not have female disciples. You have Mary Magdalene. You have Mary and Martha. At a dinner party that they're throwing for Jesus, right? Uh, Mary is sitting where? At Jesus' feet as he taught like a disciple. Martha is doing the traditional female role. She's in the kitchen and making sure everyone has enough food and she's hurrying about. But who is commended by Jesus? He wasn't trying to be mean to, to, to Martha, but he's commended Mary for sitting and, and listening to his words and his teaching. And finally, with regards to Jesus, the first witnesses to the resurrection are women. This is one of the most powerful apologetics for why you should trust in the resurrection. If you're creating a religion from scratch and you're saying, hey, a guy rose from the dead, uh, you wouldn't pick your first witnesses to that miracle uh, being people that can't testify in court. And that's exactly what they did. Women could not testify in court. And yet they are the very first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Why would you do that if it weren't true? The next thing I want us to see is from Paul himself. And there's more controversy with Paul. Some of you don't like Galatians 5 or 1 Timothy 2. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But what, what Paul teaches in Galatians, I just read to us, is, is incredible. Men and women are equal as co-heirs in salvation. We're equal in creation, both image bearers. Uh, humanity doesn't fully reflect God's glory and his image without male and female. And we are equal as co-heirs in salvation, Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither uh, slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Obviously, Paul is not saying there are no more Jewish people and there are no more Gentile people. He's not, he's not saying that. There's, there are still Jewish people and Gentile people. He's not saying the distinctions between the two sexes, male and female, don't exist. He's not saying slavery's uh, overcome and there's no more slaves, there's no more masters. But what he is saying is this, that in Christ, there is such a quality and oneness that there should no longer be any inferiority or superiority between these. We're one in Christ. Jews should look to Gentiles as their equals, subverting racism, he would say, in the church. There should be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Masters should see their slaves as so much their equals that it would ultimately subvert, it would subvert slavery. Read Philemon. If you think the Bible, and we're gonna, we'll talk about this someday, but really supports slavery, look at, look at Philemon. Men should see women as their equals 
in Christ, so much so that it would subvert misogyny. Paul included nine women as partners in his gospel ministry. As he went about planting churches, as he went about doing his work in in Acts, you see all these women listed. Priscilla, often called Prisca. Uh, Paul praised her for her help on a couple occasions. Phoebe, the deaconess, is mentioned as well. Some of them, uh, and they're not just, uh, some of them are uh, business owners, and and, and one uh, is called the household, you know, she and her household. There's Chloe, Mary, Junia, and, and several others. And you may say, yeah, and I'm encouraged by that, Scott, but I'm waiting for Ephesians 5. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Ephesians 5. Paul says something incredibly countercultural to us. In Ephesians 5.22, he says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. How? As to the Lord. This passage is countercultural. For us. Uh, Remember, we said that God's word confronts all people and all cultures in every time and every place, and often for different reasons. And and this this one is a struggle for us. But it's going to challenge every culture into which it's given. Our culture struggles with this verse and any concept of male spiritual leadership in the family system or the home. Obviously, that's a struggle. Our culture is often offended by Paul's instructions to wives, but the original audience would have been shocked by Paul's instructions to husbands. Think about it for just a second. In Ephesus, they're getting this letter, and as they're reading, and I mean, you don't get a lot of letters back then probably, and, and, and they gathered the whole community. This was a letter for the church in Ephesus. They would literally gather as this little church, and they knew Paul, and they would gather to hear it read. And when he got to the point on marriage and he said, hey, wives submit to the husbands, they would be like, uh-huh, okay. Like, what else you got? That's old news. They live in patriarchy. Of course, wives submit to the husband. The only difference would be as to the Lord, right? Like in your faith. So that would have been like, uh-huh, uh-huh, big deal. But then when they got to the part about husbands, the instructions to husbands, let's read it, it would have blown their minds, unheard of. Never heard of this. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. While the previous verse shocks us, this verse would have most certainly shocked them. What? Men don't serve women? Men don't have to sacrifice for women. They're lesser than us. Our sons matter. Uh, Daughters don't matter. Uh, Husbands matter. Wives don't matter. Sisters don't matter. Brothers matter. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love as Christ love. How did Christ love us? He lived his life for us, first of all. And he died for us. I think it's easier to die for someone than to live for someone in some ways, right? I mean, it's like if, if my family were in danger, Becky's told me many times, like, you're going to get shot because, like, sometimes I insert myself into some places I probably shouldn't. Let's not talk about that. But anyway, so, uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> I think in some ways it's easier to say, like, I would take a bullet for my family. Many men would. But it may be harder to live for your family. But Christ not only died for us, and he certainly did, but he also lived for us. 
He lived his life for us. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself. And so he died for us. But to be a good husband and and a spiritual uh, leader in your home is way more than to say, I will die for you. It's also to say, I will live for you. I will love you as much as I love myself, as my ultimate neighbor, as my spouse. Love as Christ loved. Rebecca McLaughlin in the same book, and I'll remind you what a strong woman this is. This is a PhD from Cambridge. This is a genius. She's a professor, seminary degree as well, author, speaker. And I was so glad to see, I Googled her and wanted to see her, some of her stuff online and found a video clip of her speaking at my son's college and, and at a conference in chapel and so, so encouraged by that. She really struggled with this passage when she first became a Christian. And then she wrote this about that struggle. She said this, how did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross, by giving himself naked and bleeding to suffer for her, by putting her needs above his own needs, by sacrificing everything for her. And I asked myself, how would I feel if this were commanded to wives? Wives, love your husbands to the point of death, putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. It's a good way to read it. Ephesians 5, she says, is critiqued as a mandate for spousal abuse, but tragically, it has been misused that way. But the command to husbands makes this reading impossible. It should be impossible. After reading that, Christ is so clear in in his instructions to us that whatever this kind of leadership is, it is a self-giving, self-sacrificing, humility, love. In Ephesians 5, and we're going to get into Ephesians. We're going to study it uh, later this year. Uh, In Ephesians 5, uh, he begins by saying, Christians ought to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All Christians should be submitting to one another. And if that's true of all Christians, how much more so should that be in the Christian marriage? Mutual submission towards one another. And yes, leadership by the husband, but beginning first and foremost with a humble submission towards one another in Christ and as out of love and deference to one another. Notice also, think of Boaz, by the way, when you think of that. Look at, look at how beautifully he's not put off by this strong woman in his life at all. Paul, notice, doesn't mandate a list of traditional roles. He doesn't create this list. And by, by this, this is what I mean. He doesn't mandate for women to only work in the home or to make less money than the husband. He doesn't, um, this is not an allowance for oppression or abuse. Instead, loving through dying to self. I want you to know it does not mean all, all women submitting to all men. I didn't really know that anyone espoused that view until recently, and I realized there are Christians that believe that, generally speaking, all women should uh, submit themselves to all men. That is, that is not what Paul is talking about. This passage, sadly, and others like it, have been so misused in some places in the church. You know that, right? It's been used to keep women in abusive situations, uh, used to justify bad behavior in men. And there's been, I think, in some ways, a hyper-focus on the female's role in it to submit with a lot less focus on the male's, the husband's call to self-sacrificial leadership. 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church. If, if there needs to be one area that would be most hyper-focused on, I think it would be that one, on the leader, not the follower. But we, in some segments of Christianity, and certainly our tribe, that's where the focus has been often, but that's not where it should be. It should be primarily where Paul would have meant it to been in the original culture, which is on the husband, to love your wives as Christ loved the church. The, pa- the past few years, too, have really highlighted many bad examples of churches and pastors treating women poorly and not with dignity. And it should sadden us and grieve us profoundly. I mentioned last week um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, it's a podcast. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, that's fine. But a lot of people have been listening to it, and that's why I reference it. And for me, by far, the most painful uh, episode in it was... Uh, called uh, What We've Done to Women or something along that line. We've seen recently in the recent past a well-known Bible teacher and pastor and president of a seminary, that's the same guy, all with different, those same different roles, make very insensitive comments about a well-known author and women's ministry teacher. That doesn't make sense in light of Christ. Many officers in another denomination, not the one we're in, but were exposed for making horribly disparaging comments about a female author and a member in good standing in their own denomination. She'd written a book that was challenging uh, some things along these lines. And rather than talk about it in a way that would be honoring with her, several pastors, elders, officers in a denomination had been on a chat, uh, a chat group that was a closed group on Facebook, and it got exposed publicly of things that they were saying about her. And they were, they were so disparaging that they were creating memes, being childish. Some were using anonymous accounts to do so. These are officers in God's church. That's not in line with the gospel of Christ. If you strive for truth and the purity of the church, as you do so, you have to do so with grace. Jesus came full of what? Grace and truth, not just truth. And if you live with grace and truth, there will always be tension. But in your pursuit of the purity of the church, if you don't also strive for its peace, through the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit that Christ constantly spoke of and which we'll talk about in our next series quite a bit, you are not walking in the way of Jesus. You're not honoring Christ and you're most certainly not honoring the Scriptures. The pursuit of truth is not a license to be bad towards other people. And yet many Christians say, the most gracious thing I can say to you, do for you is to tell you the truth but not if you are also undermining God's clear commands to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and all of the commands to not be divisive that Paul says over and over again. There has to be maybe biblical ways in order to solve problems. Perhaps Matthew 28 and others where you actually go to someone and express concern. And I just want to stop And even though I feel like New Valley has done a good job of honoring women, I want to apologize and and repent as a leader in God's church for the way that women have been dishonored, especially within our own tribes that we have found ourselves. Would you please forgive us? 
for the ways you've been discounted and treated as second-class citizens. It's not okay. Christ is not honored by that. As we wrestle with the tension of how to live out passages like Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2, one thing is certain. We are equal in Christ and you are to be honored, women in the church. You're to be honored, not denigrated. You're co-heirs with Christ. We're equal in Jesus. Fellow heirs of the kingdom. Friends, as we close, I want to look at the beauty of Ephesians 5 as we see this lens through Christ, not, not sinful men like me or others. Look at what Paul says about, about husbands loving their wives, but let's, let's look at it in terms of Jesus, who is loving the church, because that's really where he's pointing. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And how did he? He gave himself up for her. Friends, Jesus has given himself up for you that he might sanctify her. You're the church, by the way. He's the husband. We are the bride of Christ. He is sanctifying you. He has sanctified you. In Christ, God has cleansed of, of all of our unrighteousness, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is true of you in Jesus. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. In Christ, you will be presented before God in splendor because of what Jesus has done for you in his self-giving, self-sacrificing, sacrificing death on the cross for you. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Church, in Christ, for what he's done for you, you are without blemish. You're completely holy, beloved, forgiven. And then he says this, in the same way, husbands, should love their wives. That is the call. Such beauty, such sacrifice, such humility, such self-giving. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's look to Christ. Let him humble us as we relate to one another, as as we do ministry together. And and, in so doing, treat each other with dignity. I recently attended one of our presbytery meetings and we were debating a very, very serious issue one where there was not agreement. And it was literally a 50-50 vote with, it was slightly more, it was like a one, one differential in the vote. And we were able to disagree about a very important issue that was a very intense issue, but with dignity and love towards one another. In, in almost every instance, I walked away very, very proud of the way we were able to relate with, to one another as we debated a very hard subject. It's possible in Christ to treat each other with great humility and dignity as we disagree, as we wrestle with what is true and how to strive for purity in the church. We have to do so with great grace as we strive for truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for Christ who who has done everything needed that we may know you, that we may be forgiven, that we may be cleansed, that we may be sanctified, that we may be counted among your people. May that so humble us that we would honor one another in the church and in our, in our city. Help us to honor one another in our marriages, in our family lives, in our church to show the dignity of humanity in the image bearing that we are. 
Thank you for Jesus once again and for his faithfulness to us, which is our inspiration and our hope. And we plead his name on our behalf. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.